Hello and welcome to the latest personal injury podcast from the Barristers at St John's Chambers in Bristol. St John's Chambers personal injury pod is designed to set out in discussion, hopefully in an accessible way, the various principles of practice in clinical negligence and personal injury litigation to talk about and keep you abreast of developments in the law and to discuss in detail relevant specific cases as they arise. This podcast will look at cosmetic surgery litigation in outline. My name is Rachel Siegel. I'm a barrister in clinical negligence and personal injury at St. John's. And my name is Rodri Jones. I'm a barrister in personal injury and clinical negligence also. So starting with a working definition here for the purposes at least of this discussion, Rodri, our definition comes from a pretty good source, uh, namely the Royal College of Surgeons. Cosmetic surgery is where a person chooses to have an operation or invasive medical procedure to change their physical appearance for cosmetic rather than medical reasons. And in the context of this discussion, of course, that's going to include non-surgical procedures like fillers, Botox treatment. But of course, there's a whole range of cosmetic surgery that could be relevant in this discussion. It's something that isn't ordinarily available on the NHS. It's something that people from the UK are increasingly seeking from providers and suppliers overseas as well as within the UK on a private basis. And obviously we're going to be talking about this in more detail as we go. But Rodri, maybe you could start by telling us a little bit about the relevant legislative framework in the UK. Yes. So as you mentioned, this is private uh, on the whole. It's not available on the NHS. So most of these procedures would take place outside of the framework that applies to the NHS. So that's a kind of changing framework, but it's pretty clearly regimented. The relevant parts of legislative which apply to types of cosmetic surgery are the Care Standards Act of 2000. That really just covers areas of compliance, registration, regulation and inspection. And that mainly involves invasive cosmetic surgery and laser treatments as they relate to independent hospitals, clinics providing those types of services. And it also includes treatments which are more invasive and might be required under anesthesia or sedation. Ordinarily or originally, the Healthcare Commission who inspected all of these establishments that carry out these types of cosmetic surgical procedures would have the power to revoke practice licenses and take enforcement action, that being the Healthcare Commission, which was replaced by the Care Quality Commission, the CQC, in 2009. Now, the other relevant part is the Health and Social Care Act, uh, and that really includes the licensing of practitioners who are carrying out non-surgical cosmetic procedures such as Botox. So I think probably a lot of people probably quite reasonably considered that in the past this area of cosmetic surgery was almost certainly a bit of a wild west but certainly there's been enough litigation and enough problems within it that have gone to the media that the government have sought to try and rationalize it and control it somewhat. The other areas which are of note are the guidance that's produced by the GMC and independent 
the healthcare association. And that really just goes to good medical practice. And in terms of litigation is relevant when you're looking, for example, at the standard of care that should be applied in terms of any claims that are potentially brought by claimants who have had cosmetic surgery. And the statutory provision that you refer to in respect of non-surgical cosmetic procedures there. So you you mentioned the Health and Social Care Act. That's legislation from 2022, isn't it? So it really is quite recent. Yes, Rachel, it's to look at areas such as Botox, which are widely used in the UK. And thinking about this question of expansion that you mentioned, I mean, there are quite a few particularities of cosmetic surgery in this context of clinical negligence practice here, aren't there? So for example, as we've said before, we are focusing here on elective private cosmetic surgery, which is very much sold as a kind of luxury service, luxury concept. And of course, you know, as distinct from the kinds of surgical procedures that we deal with in the context of uh, NHS-funded treatment. What we've got here is a very different picture with a very commercial approach. It's very much an industry in and of itself. And of course, because of that, there is a different relationship between the consumer and supplier as compared to what we would normally see as patient and clinician. And then, of course, we've also got the dimension of, very significant dimension of advertising and marketing, which of course in itself has an impact on questions of contract, contractual breaches. And it's always open to us to have a look at the question of whether or not actions should and can be brought in tort or in contract. So what about the the kinds of circumstances where an individual might want to bring a claim for compensation for private cosmetic surgery that's gone wrong? I mean, just to pick up on what you were saying before, I think the key point there is that, um, as you're saying, it's contracts private, there's contracts, and individuals therefore may expect more. And then the question from a sort of legal perspective is whether they are right to expect more. Obviously, the marketing will place emphasis upon the competence of their surgeons, but there are obviously going to be natural limitations to how competent a surgeon can be. Certainly, you can't ever expect something to be 100% perfect and have exactly the results that you want every single time because we're dealing with individuals, we're dealing with human error, and that's naturally going to come into play. And I think a point that we're probably going to pick up on a bit later is that of consent, and that's when that comes in. But in relation to your question, the kinds of circumstances where an individual might wish to bring a claim for compensation. I've divided these really into two. The first one is what you'd probably expect more often where there's a poor subjective aesthetic result. That's probably unsurprising given the very purpose of the surgery is often to produce a a particular aesthetic result. And when there are issues arising from the surgery, from the subjective dissatisfaction with the results, a person may wish to, to sue. I think Good examples are certainly within breast surgery litigation, which are one of the main areas in which cosmesis is litigated, when people would often bring claims in terms of prominent scarring, asymmetry of the breasts, ptosis, where the the nipples are pointing in different directions, nipple position, and sagging. And these are often included 
in the list of non-negligent complications and defendants will seek to argue that these are all predictable non-negligent outcomes of the surgery as they do in ordinary surgical clinical negligence cases. The other area of cases that are brought are where there are significant surgical complications and this again isn't conceptually different from arguments raised in non-cosmetic surgery normal clinical negligence cases and examples of, of that include infection, sepsis, bleeding and DVTs. Again, normal practice would be that those are consented to and only when there is negligence, which is beyond that which someone can consent to, that a case may be brought. And consent issues in private cosmetic surgery, it is a key area, isn't it, where issues will commonly arise, not least because the question of need is very different in this context, isn't it? And then the question about different options, the extent to which someone is given a full range of information about alternative options. Because of course, in the case of elective cosmetic surgery, one of the options is we'll do nothing, you know, <laughs> do nothing at all. Uh, and, and the question that's more complicated in elective surgery, of course, is going to be, well, what's good for the patient? But there's still going to be different choices that need to be set up by the clinician so let's have a discussion then of what some examples of the kinds of consent issues that arise. Well, I think there were some that sort of obviously sprang to mind. And these are ones that are pointed out within the good medical practice provided by the GMC. Often people bring claims when they feel as if they've been pressurised into the procedure. I mean, obviously they've come to the market, they want to spend some money and they feel as if there's someone out there who can provide this service for them. That puts them, I suppose, into a slightly weak negotiation position and puts them in the hands of somebody who potentially might be willing to give them an unnecessary procedure in the circumstances where the surgery that's been proposed was the speciality of a defendant surgeon rather than a procedure that's likely to obtain the desired result. And then there's obviously issues you know, where someone has consented for one procedure and they've received something that's effectively a different procedure. But I think overall, the consent argument, again, isn't that much different from those within normal clinical negligence practice. Montgomery applies in terms of consent specifically, as does Bolam-based arguments regarding the standard of care. And there are various examples of cosmetic surgery consent cases that have gone to appeal, one such being Worrell and Antoniadu in the Court of Appeal in 2016, for anyone who needs it, the Neutral Citation 2016 EWCA Civ 1219. Uh, the facts of which, in a nutshell, are whether the, the claimant she had breast augmentation rather than a mastopexy. And she claimed, it's her case, that she'd understood from the defendant that actually the procedure would last or the effects of the procedure would last for about five to 10 years. And, and it was her case that this was negligent advice. Within 10 months, as it turned out, she required the mastopexy. And what she said is, well, had she known that this was going to happen, that she simply wouldn't have had the augmentation in the first place. And in the first instance, this is a case in which the claimant won because the judge took the view that the defendant had failed negligently to dispel a misapprehension by the claimant. But of course, we know now that the defendant appealed and was successful. 
And in that case, it pretty much came down to the evidence as to the claimant's recollection of a conversation that she had with the surgeon. At least that's the crux of it, isn't it? But then there's more to it than that. Yeah, it's it's quite bonkers, I suppose, like a lot of litigation. It, it rolled and rolled and then it came down to effectively the meaning of the phrase sooner or later that was recorded within one conversation between the um, defendant surgeon and the claimant. I think it was generally accepted both at first instance and the appeal that no reasonable plastic surgeon would have said that an augmentation would have, under those circumstances, lasted for five to ten years. And um, the question was, in both the first instance and the appeal, is whether the surgeon had said or done anything to promote that misunderstanding or perpetuate it. I think it's probably worth just referring to a part of the judgment from Lord Justice Tomlinson at paragraph 22, and he says, the question which the judge ought to have asked himself is whether anything said or done by the defendant at the consultation would have been reasonably understood by a reasonable patient in the position of the claimant as an assurance that it would be of the order of five to ten years before she would require a mastopexy. It's always the relevant and objective approach, but it was critically important that the judge should have couched the question in this way, having first concluded that the claimant had got hold of the wrong end of the stick. So I think that sort of sums it up, really. It's, it's a very, very nuanced point, but one certainly that the defendant surgeon got taken to court on. So there are various possible routes by which a potential claimant can bring a claim in respect of cosmetic surgery that's gone wrong or with which they're dissatisfied. Uh, one, obviously being the Consumer Rights Act 2015, considering that the patient as consumer, or should I say the claimant as consumer who opts to have the cosmetic procedure is potentially protected by the terms implied by operation of statute. But another really quite potentially, at least in the right circumstances, very convenient method for bringing a claim is the Consumer Credit Act of 1974, specifically Section 75, by which if you pay for medical treatment for cosmetic surgery on a credit card and you are not happy with the service or not happy with the outcome, then you can, in fact, bring a claim directly against the credit card company There are certain conditions that have to be met. For example, the value of the services that are being paid for must be more than £100 and no more than £30,000. But I should point out that you might pay a deposit for £80 for that treatment, but that's all. Even though that's under £100, as long as it's paid for on the credit card and it's in respect of treatment that is of a value of more than 100 and up to 30,000, that can still trigger section 75. And what section 75 uh, provides is that if the debtor, so in this case, it would be a claimant, a patient, usually under a debtor-creditor-supplier agreement. So if you like, that's your standard credit card agreement has in relation to a relevant transaction that is financed by that agreement, then any claim against the supplier 
in respect of either a misrepresentation or breach of contract, that debtor, so that individual who's made the credit card payment, shall have a like claim against the creditor who will be jointly and severally liable to the debtor. So what does that gobbledygook mean? Well, what it means is that somebody who has paid for cosmetic surgery on a credit card along the lines that I've just set out can have a like claim against the credit card company that they would have against the supplier of the services. So the cosmetic surgeon or the clinic. And there are very, very many benefits to this, not least of which is where if a claimant has gone overseas for the treatment that has gone wrong or about which they are dissatisfied, they don't have to worry about going out and understanding the law in the country in which the treatment was received. As long as it was paid for on a UK credit card, they can bring within the English and Welsh courts a claim against the credit card company directly. And they can do, but they don't have to bring a claim against the supplier at all. And obviously that provides a much more straightforward and streamlined process for bringing a claim for cosmetic surgery, which clearly brings quite significant benefits. And it is a route that both claimant barristers and claimant solicitors ought to be aware of when advising claimants or prospective claimants. And I say that not least because there has been professional negligence litigation brought against solicitors who failed to advise correctly on that point, A, on the route and B, on the circumstances by which a claim may be brought under the Consumer Credit Act 1974, at least Section 75. The important point from the Consumer Credit Act is that you eliminate the need to find the correct tortfessor. And that can be a significant issue in some types of cosmetic surgery claims, not least because there's often a distinction between operating surgeons who perhaps caused an operative complication and uh, the aftercare provided by allied medical staff at private clinics, the post-operative complications, as I've mentioned earlier. In wading through the, the various possibilities, I always think it's best for a claimant in that particular situation to try and get to the top of the chain to find the party who is most suable. And in doing that, there's often going to be possible relationships between various parties, which might invoke notions of either a non-delegable duty of care, which is the relationship between a named defendant and the claimant, and vicarious liability, where there's that which describes essentially the relationship between a named defendant and a third party tortfessor. I'm not going to go into this in any great detail, the key cases are Woodland and Swimming Teachers Association 2013 UKSC 66 and for vicarious liability Barclays Bank PLC and various claimants 2020 UKSC 13. I think a particularly germane case is Hughes and Rattan 2022 EWCA Civ 1 where the claimant brought a claim against the owner and operator of a dental practice in regard to negligence in terms of the parties, the dentists who had effectively done the dental work on her. This went to the Court of Appeal and Lord Justice Bean essentially found that there was 
a non-delegable duty of care, but not a vicarious relationship between Mr. Rattan, who was the uh, owner and operator of the dental practice, and the dental practitioners. So non-delegable duty of care and vicarious liability in that case were not found to be coterminous. And you can see how similar situation might arise in a cosmetic surgery claim, certainly under the circumstances where, as I've mentioned, there's a division of labor or perhaps where difficulties arrive with clinicians who are not sufficiently insured. The range of potential defendants starts to enlarge. And often, as was the case with Hughes and Rattan, the devil is in the detail of contracts. Indeed. And actually, on that same theme of non-delegable duty of care, there was that really quite curious, at least at first glance, case two or three years ago, I think it was three years ago, um, of Hopkins and Akrami, Badger Group and the NHS Commissioning Board. And and actually, yes, the neutral citation of which is uh, 2020 EWHC 3445, which we don't have time to talk about in any detail, but was a case of a very young child being taken uh, by uh, her grandma to what the grandma had thought was an NHS clinic but actually it turned out was a private clinic provided by the Badger Group. That is one that is most definitely worth having a read of because it does air some of the complexities in respect of this concept of non-delegable duty of care, albeit clearly not in a cosmetic surgery context, but still the principles are of relevance. And one fairly well-known, very recent case in the field of cosmetic surgery litigation is Clark and Kalachinsky in High Court in 2022, a case that I know you and I have discussed and out of which arise numerous different sorts of issues that are germane to this field of practice, looking at the range of types of claim that you might be dealing with, the question of vicarious liability, the question of the limits of contractual duties and bringing claims within contract, bringing a claim in another jurisdiction. Interestingly enough, in respect of the facts of that particular case. It was one in which a dancer who was based in the UK, she decided that she wanted cosmetic surgery on her breasts and thighs. And she went looking for a surgeon who could do this. She found a clinic located in Poland. She was looking online. And the clinic website advertised that it would meet with people. It would offer appointments, different consultations within the United Kingdom and it would then be followed up by the surgical procedure, which would take place in Poland. The issues with that, in respect of what went wrong, was unfortunately the claimant had some really very, very serious infection. In fact, she ended up after very shortly after the surgery on a plane and then returned to the UK with a really, really sad and sorry case of of acute sepsis, obviously life-threatening, and was taken for emergency surgery to try and deal with the infection and, of course, save this poor woman's life. Now, that was a case in which she transferred money directly from her bank account to the account, I believe, of either the surgeon or the clinic. Had, in fact, she paid 
for the surgery on a simple UK credit card, she'd have been able to take the Consumer Credit Act route to bring her claim and potentially save herself quite a lot of hassle and energy and time. But there's more to it than that, though, isn't there, Clark and Kalachinsky? Yes, Rachel, it's probably worthwhile saying that in terms of the parties in there, there's Miss Clark and there's the Kalachinsky was the surgeon who performed the operation. But the other parties were a clinic that was incorporated in Poland. And then the third defendant was the insurer of the clinic who had an indemnity cap, which was also a bone of contention in terms of, of, of how far they could indemnify the D1 and D2. The interesting points, I think, that came out of this were set out in the judgment by Mrs. Justice Forster. She sets out this framework of questions that needed to be decided. It's quite a treasure trove, this case, in terms of the legal issues that were at stake. Just looking through that, that's set out at paragraph 75 of her judgment. The questions, and I'll just go through them briefly. Did the claimant have a contract for the carrying out of the surgery and the consequences of care? And if so, was that contract with the first defendant or the second defendant or both? And certainly she found that in law, contractually, she had a contract with both the first defendant, that being the surgeon, also the second defendant, that being the clinic. Obviously, the the necessary features and whether the expertise of the surgeon were set out on the website that she contacted in the UK were questioned and whether that was effectively an inducement or a mere puff. The judge found that it formed part of the essential terms of the contract that she had entered into. Then the next question was, what law is to be applied to the claimant's claim in contract? Certainly there were two parts of the contract that were entered firstly in the UK and then secondly uh, in Poland. There was a consent form as well, which wasn't before the court, didn't turn up in the evidence. Mrs. Justice Forster decided it was English law applying Article 6 of Rome 1 The other questions that she asked was, what other claims does the claimant have and against who? And in terms of the tortious elements of the claim, what law is to be applied to such claims as the claimant has? Um, She found in that that the Polish civil code applied to the, the tortious duty that set out there needed to be fault and damage and a causal relationship which essentially was the same as the United Kingdom, but not set out in a code, obviously. The further question was, given the applicable standards, has the claimant made out her case in contract, in tort, and whether those concepts of vicarious liability were relevant? I think a lot of the points actually fell away within the course of her judgment. But an interesting point that came out of it was in terms of the concept of safety standards, and whether they were applicable in Poland in the same way as they were in England. And having reviewed the case law, which was presented to her, which was mainly in regards to package holidays, she stated in paragraph 105 of her judgment, the English standard of care could not be transposed to an alleged breach of duty in a foreign location. That's a summation of the relevant case law on package holidays. But she felt uh, in this particular case that the negligence that had occurred was not subtle. It fell far below the acceptable standards, such the, the standard of care in Poland wasn't particularly relevant. Yes. And well, I mean, I think it was a few paragraphs later that she also said, and I pause there to remind us that actually this was a sepsis case. She says, there are certainly reducible standards in life-threatening situations where 
local custom practice and standards are irrelevant exactly as you say and this was in my judgment she says such a situation so pretty clear and of course the claimant was successful in that matter against all of the defendants notwithstanding the question of indemnity bearing in mind as you referred to it before there was the question of the extent of the indemnity being only £38,500 and in fact the claim was was of a significantly higher value. So those are a few of our initial thoughts, that's our kind of discussion of a few elements in respect of cosmetic surgery litigation. It's just a starting point for further discussion but Please do get in touch with us if you would like us to cover any particular topics or you'd like us to drill down in more detail to anything that you've heard in this podcast. Thank you very much for listening and thank you, Rodri. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to know any more about St John's Chambers or you want to instruct the barristers in the clinical negligence or personal injury teams, please take a look on our website or get in touch with the PI clerks at stjohnschambers.co.uk.